Hello, I'm Chris Clark. Welcome to Germany Now, a podcast from the Cambridge DAAD Hub, the Nerve Centre for German Studies at the University of Cambridge. And our guest today is Professor Ezra Özyurek of the Divinity Faculty here at the University of Cambridge. Ezra is an anthropologist by training whose research focuses on the relationship between individuals and the worldviews they embrace. In particular, she's interested in the personal experiences of those individuals who embrace a universalistic ideology or belief system that they did not inherit from their grandparents or parents, but instead chose to borrow from others and make their own. She writes, The particular challenges these individuals face give us clues about how humans make and remake the divisions between them. She is the author of Nostalgia for the Modern, a study of state secularism and everyday politics in Turkey, and she's written widely on the politics of public memory, authoritarianism, and political resistance. But she's joining us today on Germany Now to talk about another book, a book that appeared in 2015 with Princeton University Press. Its title is Being German, Becoming Muslim, Race, Religion and Conversion in the New Europe. Ezra, it's wonderful that you can be here. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Ezra, you're interested in converts, people who convert from one religion to another. How did that focus come about? As you have said, I am interested in people who choose their own set of values. So in Turkey, I have been interested in Muslims who have embraced secularism. In Germany, I worked with former Christians or atheists who embraced Islam. Most people believe in what their parents also believe, but a significant portion of people in the world choose their own. And I wanted to see how this changes their lives. And from your experience of speaking with converts, do they have something fundamental in common? Is there a sort of convert type? That is a really good question. I would say contact is most important. People who have contact with converts are more open. And then, you know, it becomes which class do you belong to, where in the city you live. And if then after that contact, some people open up their hearts, some people do not. And you're dealing here with German converts. So how does this movement, if you're a German who's converting to Islam, Presumably, there's a transformation going on in, in types of belonging. You belong to one thing, and then at some point, you belong to another thing. How does that work? And what are they moving away from? And what are they entering into? I would say people probably move away from different things. You know, so the, the deeper I went into my research, the more I was questioning, okay, what is it that brings all of these people together? but they do really come from different places. Some are former Catholics, some are former Protestants, some are really religious, some are not. Also, I met you know, a couple of Jewish converts. Also, non-Christian immigrants also have found Islam. And also what these people taught that they're leaving behind and what their families or friends have taught they're leaving behind were also different. For example, many of them have taught they have not changed anything. They just found God 
or some people have thought actually they have upgraded their religion. That, that was a common thing. And the ones who were formerly religious Christian, for example, they thought, you know, Islam recognizes Jesus. It just says, okay, there is now a further message. So in that sense, they thought they have not changed, that they remain German and that they it becomes better Germans, more true to themselves. But people around them, their families, their friends, or mainstream society have thought they are leaving Germanness behind. Um, mm. I want to come back to this question of how other people in the community that they seem to be leaving, although as you point out, they're not necessarily leaving the community or any community. But before we come to that, I also wanted to ask you about the gender dimension of conversion. Is it evenly balanced between women and men, or is there um, a preponderance of one over the other? The gender dimension is that more women than men convert to Islam, although now both the age of conversion is dropping and we are having more men. You know, there have been Muslims in Germany for more than 100 years, but if we think about the post-war society, more single men came to Germany. And it is the women, they had romantic relationships, have converted. But as the Muslim society in Germany became more balanced, men and women, and more importantly, as they became more integrated into society, conversion now happens in all sorts of places. For example, now it happens a lot in schools. And who converts now are, you know, both young men and women who have contacts with young Muslim men, you know, on the streets, in nightclubs. And also a lot happens while vacationing too. They go to lots of Muslim majority countries and there they fall in love with people and they convert. They don't necessarily marry or they do not necessarily stay there, but that interaction had opened up their heart and they learn more about Islam and they convert when they're in Germany. It happens more to women. You know, maybe women are more religious. We know that their heart is a little bit more open to spirituality, but there are more single Muslim men in Germany. Yes, interesting. So for many reasons, possibly for love, out of cultural curiosity and interest, and possibly for spiritual reasons, Germans convert to Islam. What happens next? How do they fit into the Muslim communities that they now presumably belong to or want to belong to? So maybe I can talk about what happens next. You meet someone who is Muslim and you get really curious. You went to Tunisia, you fell in love with your diving instructor, or you were at a club, you chatted with a bunch of Palestinian guys, or at work, you first really got surprised by this co-worker, you know, you're working at the supermarket, you stack the shelves. He says, sorry, I have to take some time off and pray. And he does it regularly. And you got curious and you started asking questions. For example, this woman who fell in love with her diving instructor in Tunisia, I met her when she came back from travel at the mosque, you know, she had a white headscarf and a white outfit, you know, she was glowing. And, you know, I said, uh, mashallah, I see that you recently uh, embraced Islam. You know, how did that happen? She fell in love and she came back to Germany. And there she started learning about Islam. And I asked her, 
was the guy religious? Did he talk about religion? Did he express any desire that you convert to Islam? She said, no, 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 he was not religious at all. But I came back and I converted. And then actually she went back and said, you know, here I am, I converted, you know, I want to marry you. And then the guy said, (laughs) (laughs) if I wanted a Muslim girl with a headscarf, actually, I have all these cousins that my parents are trying to marry me. Oh, but I really don't want this. And then she came back, she accepted this, but she continued on her journey. So this is quite common that people actually do not stay with the people. That is the original mediator, it is called in conversion studies. It also happens that sometimes the mediator gets also impressed. Actually, it is more difficult to meet someone who is really pious, who practices everything, because, you know, those people are not diving instructors. They don't go to (laughs) nightclubs, right? It is much more How would you meet them? Yes, yes, yes. So sometimes these mediators get impressed. They say, wow, this German girl, this light in my religion, why don't I also follow this path? So for example, together, then they become more pious. That happens. But more often, the mediator says, you know, listen, honey, it was really nice meeting you, but this is not my cup of tea. And the person continues their own path, and they start going to mosque. When I did my research, there were only six German-speaking mosques in Berlin out of more than 100. They are often Salafi-oriented mosques because Turkish mosques do their things in Turkish. It would be helpful if you could explain what Salafi means. Okay, Salafi can be defined as a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. It is 19th century approach of going back to the origins, getting rid of all cultural practices that came along. And then let's go back to what the Quran says and the example of Prophet. Um, It is also practiced in Saudi Arabia. They are also often very active on the internet. So as a newcomer, you know, in Germany, you want to learn about Islam. What you encounter is this most rigid fundamentalist definition of Islam. And they start attending these mosques, but they are not nationalists. They also want converts, unlike other mosques. So they start hanging out there and they have friends from different backgrounds. There will be, you know, Arabs, Turks, but also immigrants from Africa, from all around the world. And in those communities, they feel comfortable with each other. And when you say those communities, this is really interesting. Do they then form a kind of subculture or a community within the Islamic community or the Muslim community, I mean, is there such a thing as a community of converts? Do they wind up hanging out mainly with other people who've converted to Islam? What I have observed is that there are definitely communities of converts because they get along with each other. They understand each other well because once they become Muslim, it happens to all sorts of converts. You know, it is like a utopian belief, a, mm. a community where everything is perfect, you know, so they come in with those kinds of desires. The reality is not, right? You know, any religious community, you know, you have mean people, you have, I don't know, liars, people who don't take things seriously. The usual mix. Exactly. So they go in there and then the born Muslims do not necessarily embrace them. They also do not necessarily trust them. So let's say you are a German woman, you married a born Muslim man, Turkish or Arab, and 
his mother-in-law doesn't necessarily trust you. She's happy that you converted, but she's also fundamentally unhappy that her son married a German woman. One of the biggest worries is that what if she gets divorced, right? German women tend to be independent. They have their stereotypes too. And what if she gets divorced and takes away my child? I've also found out that Germans who convert have fantasies about these really happy, big Muslim families that came Mm. up a lot. People said, you know, I come from a small family or I come from a broken family. What really interested me at first was that they have these really big families. I wanted to be a part of it. You know, really big families are great, but also there are (laughs) lots of (laughs) problems in those big families, you know, anywhere, right? (laughs) In the world, it is like that. And they're not necessarily welcomed into the families. So there actually is a lot of heartbreak I have also observed, both from the family, let's say they got married into, and also the community. Turkish Muslims don't necessarily are welcoming. I have found Arab Muslims are more welcoming than Turkish Muslims. So they are not immediately or or ever full members of the born Muslim community. So they start forming communities within themselves. And I have to say, I had the most fun and the most jokes with these communities because it's a very specific community and they would really laugh really loudly at their situation, at the absurd situations that they would encounter every day. So it is like a community with very specific experiences. So in that they understand each other and they hang out with each other. Um, At this point in time, there are enough converts that they start marrying each other. That's fascinating. So they form a kind of subculture. Well, I mean, I, I'm interested in these questions because actually, I don't know if you know this, the, the, the first book that I ever wrote many years ago was a book about efforts by Protestants in the German state of Prussia mm-hmm. to convert Jews to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that emerges about Jewish converts, who are not very numerous, I mean, they've never been a very large contingent of their respective Jewish communities, but that Jewish converts did tend to form a kind of subculture that they tended to end up involved with a lot of other converts and that was partly because of barriers to you know what used to be called assimilation barriers to a sort of full absorption in the destination community so these factors you talk about are not specific to the christian islamic or german islamic situation are they are they i mean they're common to the convert predicament but one thing that interested me was that there's a sort of crude understanding which one sometimes hears aired on the media that converts to islam tend to be more pious you already mentioned that they come in through this salafi filter into the process of conversion and that they're more prone to extremism and of course whenever converts crop up in narratives about extremist atrocities or outrages or whatever they always attract a lot of interest is there a connection do you think between conversion piety and extremism I'll answer that, but I wanted to make a comment about your previous point. I believe when the boundary between two communities is more prominent, or the more prominent the boundary is, I think assimilation is more difficult. Mm. Let's say if there are two groups that are, you know, they get along pretty well, they're mixed. And in that, when people, when an individual converts, then it is easier to cross the boundary. But let's say Jews and Christians in 19th century were pretty segregated. 
and then Muslims and Christian and post-Christian Germans are also pretty segregated. So even when they embrace each other's religion, assimilation doesn't come easily. Mm. I believe that is a factor. So in relation to your other question, it is again a stereotype that the converts yes. take it too seriously or that they become radical. For one, I would say, of course, the people take religion seriously convert. Like you can hear something about Jewish religion and you can say, oh, how interesting. Or you hear something about Buddhism and say, wow, that really touched my heart. But it is a huge step to convert. You know, if you don't take it seriously, why would you do that and make your mother angry at you, you know, change the way you dress, change the way you eat? So there are some people who convert without taking it seriously. Let's say, I don't know, I met people who, if you want to marry an Iranian woman, for example, you have to convert, otherwise your marriage will not be valid in Iran, and mm. you will not be able to visit her family. You know, some people convert out of practicalities, or some people say, oh, just convert to make my parents happy, and, I, you know, such things happen. But those people are really difficult to find because they don't even tell it to you. Doing my research, as I would talk about my research, some people had said, yeah, I had converted to please my ex-spouse's parents. But, you know, how would it even come up? You know, it is not an important factor in their lives. You know, so those people go around without anyone noticing that they even converted. Another dimension about them becoming radicalized, let's say, one important element I feel like is that they become lonely when they first convert. First, they want to do it well, right? Anyone who also started a diet after New Year will recognize this, right? You, <laughs> you take it really seriously. You're not going to eat even a slice of bread for your breakfast, but then you'll find out after a while things are getting looser. That happens. Well, it's okay if it's the clothes that are getting looser. Yes. But, you, but you, mean, you mean the actual praxis of the diet gets laxer, absolutely, yes. which is not so positive. So there's a sort of loosening of the commitment, yeah. Yes. But what I think is crucial in radicalization is that converts become alone suddenly, unexpectedly. Mm. Their families reject them. And also they stop spending time with their old friend. It really is amazing how much drinking happens in German society. You know, maybe it is not excessive drinking, but a lot of socializing is around drinking. And if you want to take it seriously, you want to avoid drinking, you want to avoid eating pork, then the best way you can do is stop hanging out with the friends that they used to. And the kinds of conversations they have also become meaningless. You just discovered God, you know, you discovered this path, you care about your salvation, you're not going to talk about, you know, football or whatnot. So they're isolated. And if you are someone who is looking for someone to do something for you for, you know, a terrorist act, of course, a convert is a good candidate, because they don't have the social networks that they used to. Fascinating. I'm going to be annoyed with myself if I don't ask you this question. What, what, do we have any idea of the total volume of conversions in Germany today? Yeah. You know, I am an anthropologist, so few people are enough for me to make you generalizations. <laughs> but there are people who wanted to count, even though this is impossible, mm. um, because there are people who come 
in and out. You know, I would meet people at the mosque, you know, who would convert in public. And, you know, after I would go to them, you know, trying to strike up a conversation and they would say things like, yes, this is the third time I'm converting. I was like, oh, great. So how did this happen? You know, so for a number of reasons, it is, there is no registry, you don't uh, put it down anywhere. But for the longest time, every time I look, it is estimated that 100,000 people have converted. Um, And it is the same number in the UK and same number in France. You know, I have no reason not to believe that number. About 100,000 altogether. Yeah. So we are talking about a small group. It's interesting you say that about converting and then converting again and then again, because in the early modern period during the Reformation, there's a lot of interesting work showing that there was a lot of dipping back and forth between Catholicism and various forms of Reformed religion, for example, that the boundaries were much more porous and open and the identities much softer than we might think before things had become confessionalized and hardened into group identities. But in any case, just coming back to the, the, the larger setting in which you're working, is there, is there a specifically German dimension to this story? Is there something about the German conversion story that makes it special or is specific to it? One aspect is definitely it is a West European story. Right? It is after the post-war immigrants coming to Western Europe to rebuild it. Earlier converts, for example, before the war, They were either Orientalists or they were really rich people who could go to the Orient, or there were also a number of Jewish people who went to Palestine and there they met Islam. So in that sense, what is post-war German or post-war French, let's say post-war British, the British story is a little bit different, are similar in the sense that you have a large number of single men coming to a country to build it, and then settling there. And then also people, again, keep coming. Uh, So that is crucial. Another thing that is German, I think, has to do with the post-war German identity of the desire to define oneself beyond German identity. So there are huge numbers of converts to any religion in Germany. The largest number of Buddhist community outside Asia is in Germany. I was surprised to learn how there were so many Native American religions represented in Germany. So many of them go to, I don't know, Idaho, where not, and then join these Native American religious rituals. I used to live in Berlin in a a flat, in an apartment, where the Hauswart, the guy who was the sort of concierge, who who looked after the stairwells and so on, he was the devotee of a, a Native American religion. Yeah. And he once took me up to his flat and um, it was full of these, you know, sort of dream catchers. And I mean, I don't know how authentic they were, but totems and objects of various kinds associated with his Native American religion. So I've, I've actually seen someone who was a convert to this phenomenon, but I thought he was the only one. But you, you just made it clear that it, it is a long tradition. It is. I, I don't know the numbers, but there are many of them. Or there are, for example, if you look at the the Kurdish movement, you know, both the PKK and, you know, in Syria, there are so many Germans there, white Germans who have joined to fight against the Islamic State. I think both, you know, this post-war German identity to be open to the world and I can go outside of my German identity 
and also the richness of their country both brings lots of people into Germany and also it allows them to travel around the world and have the contacts necessary for conversion. So those things I think make it a German story. What are you working on now? I have been, while doing this research, I have been really curious about the other side of the coin. I was wondering what would make a Muslim German? I quickly figured out that conversion to Christianity wouldn't do it necessarily. I did meet Turks who convert to Christianity, but they were converting to a Turkish Christianity. But I have quickly realized that the foundation of the post-war German identity is commemorating the Holocaust and having learned the right lessons from it. But it is quite difficult for latecomers to enter into this story because how it has been commemorated until now is that you need to feel guilty or responsible for the mistakes of your grandparents. So you own it. It is quite genealogical. So if you're a Turk, if you're an Arab, if you're a Vietnamese, how are you going to enter into that story? It is quite exclusive. This is very interesting because Australia has a similar issue. I mean, in Australia, white Australian society is rightly very preoccupied with the sort of waves of genocidal violence unleashed by the first settlers in the late 18th and early 19th century. And that's become, I think it's true to say, that's become part of the Australian national identity. But what about people who, for example, are the children or grandchildren of boat people from Vietnam or of Chinese immigrants or Indonesian or Malaysian immigrants? How should they relate to this story of, of an Australian genocide when it's not really part of their, first of all, of their family history and secondly, of, of their national or cultural background? They may come from environments which are themselves have been shaken by violence and massacre and whatever, but not the ones that Australians remember. So there is a problem, isn't there, with coming into someone else's historically inherited preoccupations with their moral legacies? Yes, and it is, there is yet another level of complication. You know, in the US, where I'm more familiar with, for example, who benefited from the slavery? Michael Rothberg recently wrote a book about this. For example, what is his role as a Jewish American whose ancestors came after the slavery was abolished, but then, you know, Jews were considered white? So in a way, to this day, he benefits from being a white American, even though his ancestors did not contribute to slavery. So both in Australia and the US, we are looking at maybe it was a war that was won, let's say. But in Germany, this war was also lost. So how can we say people are benefiting from the Holocaust. I mean, maybe there are people, I think, who benefited. Lots of property was expropriated. I don't know, lots of artwork. So there are some people, you know, and it can be traced, you know, who stole uh, Jewish property. Mm. Also, some people got their jobs, right, you know, at the universities or in other places. But overall, because Germany has lost the war, you cannot say that Turks who came are benefiting from it. They came to a country that lost, okay, maybe they benefited from the martial aid and then they were able to have jobs. You know, so in that sense, it becomes even more complicated. Yes, you don't inherit the, there's not this notion of an inherited privilege which would not exist without slavery. That cannot be 
transported or transferred lock, stock and barrel to the Holocaust. There simply isn't the same historical logic there. So what happens then when presumably this is part of the education of young Muslims who are attending German schools, that they go through this same process that their fellow pupils go through, namely that they receive quite intensive historical instruction and and ethical instruction about the Holocaust and what it means for Germany today. Exactly. Well, what has been happening, you know, in my interviews, I'm finding out that until 2000s, when, let's say, Turkish background children were interested in the Holocaust, their teachers would say, honey, this is not for you, you know, don't bother yourself. Or sometimes they would say, why don't you learn what Turks did to Armenians? Why don't you look at what Turks are doing to Kurds? You know, like kind of this genealogical understanding again. With this a slight, is... slight wag of the finger. <laughs> yes. Or, you know, this is not your thing. This is our mm. thing. Let us deal with this. But after 2000s, the discussion has totally changed. Suddenly, Muslims became at the center of Holocaust memory and discussions of anti-Semitism, you know, obviously we, they're separate but closely related. Then suddenly be, Muslims became the real anti-Semites and the ones who are also the ones that didn't repent. So they are really even worse. And there is a huge investment from the government and also other you know, non-governmental organizations on Holocaust education for Muslims and anti-Semitism prevention trainings for Muslims. So what got me was this Holocaust education for Muslims. It really puzzled me. How can you have Holocaust education that is different for different groups? Will you then mm. have Holocaust education for Vietnamese, Holocaust education for people who come from Ghana? It really puzzled me. And I started attending those. And then you know it pulled me into this entire narrative who is organizing them? What is the narrative behind it? Who is attending them? Who are the people also who want to uh, provide these educations? So I have found that there is like a considerable group of young Muslims who want to unapologetically say, I am German, you know, they are there for three generations, they feel German, they are politically involved. They also are critical of racism. It is difficult to bring up other kinds of racism in Germany, but if you talk about anti-Semitism, sometimes it can become a way of bringing up different kinds of discrimination. So they say, we want to become German, and in order to do that, we are ready to take this responsibility on our shoulders. But it is kind of difficult. Where are you going to enter it from? So one thing I have found is that these trainings create alternative communities or alternative genealogies of perpetratorship. For example, there is a lot of emphasis, let's say, on the Mufti of Jerusalem who collaborated with Hitler. You know, he was quite marginal to the war. I mean, he, he was a bad character, you know, absolutely. But he was not responsible for the Holocaust. But for example, in these trainings, young Arabs learn about that. And then young Turks, uh, Turkish background Germans, learn about anti-Semitism in Turkey. So that I found quite surprising. So they are integrated into this Holocaust memory. And the idea that there are perpetrators and anti-Semites in their own genealogies, but still through their own ancestors. You know, so this German idea that you take responsibility 
of the mistakes of your own ancestors are created within this Holocaust education for Muslims. That is fascinating. So the very thing that's supposed to blend people together into a kind of, you know, uh, an undifferentiated mix actually succeeds in re-separating them, reaffirming the, the separateness of their... And if they want to be perpetrators, that's fine, but they have to have their own perpetrators in their family trees. Exactly. Fascinating. You know, of course, I also understand the difficult challenge. They do not want to say okay, this is like a mistake, like many other mistakes have humans have made. So let's just, you know, one genocide among many others, right? That That is difficult for many Germans to say. So they want to claim something special value and a special responsibility, but they also want to make it a universal story for everyone to learn and also others to contribute. So that is the solution they found. But I feel like it doesn't, really incorporate others into this post-war German identity. No, it's very interesting. Because, I mean, it also shows how hard it is to get these things right. Yes. I mean, there's an intrinsic complexity in the problem, which I think you've set out very well. And I just wanted to close by saying, I mean, I suppose what this means, what, what comes out of this is that German national identity or the boundaries of Germanness are perhaps still less porous or, or somewhat tighter than we might expect. That's one thought. And the other is that Europe is in some ways, our post-Christian, supposedly hyper-secular Europe, is perhaps you know, not as secular as we thought. And if you're deciding to cross religious boundaries in this way, then you, you find out that religion counts for more than you might have thought. Exactly. I have met lots of people who cross these boundaries. And every time you cross them, you change them a little bit. But at the same time, you may be hardening them too. Or the experiences of these people show us how hard these boundaries are. And I would fully agree with you that the boundaries of German national identity are still, you know, quite strong. That's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Esra. Yeah, thank you. As Jurek, <laughs> you've been listening to Germany Now, a podcast of the Cambridge DAAD German Studies Hub. I'm Chris Clark, and I'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for tuning in. Germany Now is a TDC production. The music is by Alexander Clark, and the producer is Trevor Dan.